What is up, everyone? You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian. Nando's out today, but Kale Brooks is here, live in the flesh, our super producer. Uh, but for those of you who are like, oh, man, I really love those Nando decodes, don't worry. He uh, pre-recorded one for you guys, um, and he's going to talk about the uh, recent crime wave and how the left needs to take that seriously. And uh, Kale, why don't you give uh, the audience a little taste of what's coming today? Yeah. Uh, well, good to be here, as always. I'm always here. You just sometimes see me, sometimes you don't. Uh, but no, this show is going to be really great. Uh, the top, we're covering uh, Syria. Um, and uh, it's actually, there's quite a bit of uh, American militarism and foreign policy throughout the show. So uh, starting with Syria, but then um, later in the show, we're going to be joined by Tariq Ali, who, if you don't know, um, has been you know, one of these like giants on the, you know, the international, especially the Anglophone left uh, since the new left. He's, he has an entire book about his experience uh, on the new, uh, being a part of the new left in the sixties. Um, but he's been an important uh, voice and um, uh, just again, figure on the left uh, for the, for that duration and has written many, many books. He has a new book on the history of uh, the war in Afghanistan. And so uh that I think uh, is going to be really great and you shouldn't miss that. So if you were thinking, Hey, I'm only going to catch like the first couple minutes of weekends and then duck out. Don't do that. This is, it's worth staying till the end. I don't know if I can always say that. No, we can always say that. But this yeah. Especially- we can always say that. I feel like this show, um, listen, it's, it's unlike any other show. That's why I love doing it. Um, I was just telling Kale right before we went live weekends is the only program where we're not worried about like any type of clickbaity topics. We just talk about issues that actually matter. We go in depth. Um, but those are topics that typically don't perform well monetarily. And I bring that up because the reason why we're able to do the show is because of the wonderful subscribers to Jacobin Magazine, to those of you who are subscribed to the YouTube channel um, and watch not only weekends, but the Jacobin show during the week. Um, so all of that support really helps to keep uh, this show and you know everything we're doing in video content sustainable. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, so uh, you're right. We're going to talk about a lot of foreign policy today. And there was a story this week that I thought was incredibly important, got very little attention. It's actually one of those rare examples where the New York Times does good journalism and it had to do with Syria. So you want to get started with that? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So a new a new investigation by the New York Times uh, looked into a drone strike that was conducted by the United States military in 2019. This is during the Trump administration. And the drone strike was something that honestly ended up being a complete and utter disaster. And uh, it's clear from the reporting that the New York Times did that the Pentagon went out of its way to ensure there was a cover-up for this drone strike because of the death toll involving civilians. Now, um, look, drone strikes have led to so many civilian casualties, um, you know, not just in Syria. We've, we've seen it in Iraq, Afghanistan, just complete and utter disaster. The Obama administration callously referred to civilian deaths as a result of drone strikes as uh, collateral damage, uh, further adding insult to injury. Um, but this is a case where a drone strike was conducted under the Trump administration who uh, went out of his way to stop any government reporting on drone strikes and the number of civilian casualties. But that doesn't mean that the drone strikes stopped. 
So here's the specific drone strike I'm referring to. This happened in March 18th of 2019. Members of the once fierce caliphate were cornered in a dirt field next to a town called Bagus. Um, a U.S. military drone circled high overhead, hunting for military targets, but it saw only a large crowd of women and children huddled against a riverbank. All right, so you see women and children. You, you don't see enemy combatants. You know, you don't see uh, so-called terrorists. Women and children, giant group of people, right? Well, without warning, an American F-15E attack jet streaked across the drone's high-definition field of vision and dropped a 500-pound bomb on the crowd, swallowing it in a shuddering blast. As the smoke cleared, a few people stumbled away in search of cover. Then a jet tracking them dropped one 2,000-pound bomb, then another, killing most of the survivors. And by the way, there was shock among some members of the military immediately. Um, so there were personnel watching live as this was happening. And some of them, according to the New York Times, were stunned. Uh, they were in disbelief, especially because it was clear that there were so many women and children in that group that had just been um, hit not once, not twice, but three different times. Now, uh, the correct number for uh, casualties is 70. Okay, so... Um, and we're talking about civilian casualties here. A legal officer flagged a strike or flagged the strike as a possible war crime and required an investigation. But at nearly every step, the military made moves that concealed the catastrophic site uh, strike. The death toll was downplayed. Reports were delayed, sanitized and classified. United States led coalition forces bulldozed the blast site. The top leaders weren't even notified that this happened. Um, and it just keeps getting worse. It's just very clear that uh, not only was there a high number of civilian casualties from this particular uh, strike, but the military just went out of its way to pretend like this wasn't a big deal. It didn't need to be investigated. The bombing had been called in by a classified American Special Operations Unit, Task Force 9, which was in charge of ground operations in Syria. The task force operated in such secrecy that at times it did not inform even its own military partners of its actions. In the case of the bombing, the American Air Force Command in Qatar had no idea the strike was even coming, an officer who served at the command center said. And since this was a potential war crime, an alarmed Air Force intelligence officer called on the Air Force lawyer in charge to determine whether this was something that needed to be investigated. Air Force lawyer Lieutenant Colonel Dean Corsak believed he had witnessed possible war crimes and repeatedly pressed his leadership and Air Force criminal investigators to act. When they did not, he alerted the Defense Department's independent inspector general. And then two years after the strike, seeing no evidence that the watchdog agency was taking action, Colonel Corsak emailed the Senate Armed Services Committee telling its staff that he needed or he had top secret material to discuss and adding, quote, I'm putting myself at great risk of military retaliation for sending this. By the way, uh, he's no longer he is no longer um, employed in that position. So uh, he was retaliated against, but he clearly was trying to do the right thing here. He also wrote this senior ranking U.S. military officials intentionally and systematically circumvented the deliberate strike process. A unit had intentionally entered false strike log entries, clearly seeking to cover up the incidents. 
And uh, by the way, they were supposed to save all video um, evidence of what had occurred, uh, the video um, evidence of the strikes that had occurred uh, for an independent investigation. But again, that investigation never happened. Also, the Times reports that um, it sent its findings to U.S. Central Command, which oversaw the air war in Syria. The command acknowledged the strikes for the first time, saying 80 people were killed. But the airstrikes were justified. They were totally okay. Now, it said the bombs killed 16 fighters and four civilians. As for the other 60 people, the statement said it was not clear that they were civilians, in part because women and children in the Islamic State sometimes took up arms. So that's nice. Uh, Go ahead and do these strikes, kill dozens of women and children, refuse to do an investigation into what happened, tamper with the evidence, and then more importantly, at the end, try to blame this on the very victims, on the women and children who were slaughtered by these strikes, uh, try to paint them as dangerous terrorist or an imminent threat. It's absolutely insane. But it doesn't surprise me because this is a similar reaction that we got following a drone strike that took place in Afghanistan, in Kabul, not too uh, long ago. This was while U.S. troops were uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan. There was uh, an ISIS-K strike near the Kabul airport, uh, and you know it was a suicide uh, bombing and a lot of people died. Uh, Afghan people died. Some um, members of the U.S. military died as well. And in retaliation, the Biden administration signed off on a drone strike that ended up killing um, no enemy combatants, no terrorists, no members of ISIS. Uh, it was just an Afghan family. Many of those who died were children. And so there was a, a, a there was an invest, investigation into that. And uh, the outcome of the investigation was there was no wrongdoing on behalf of the United States military, no wrongdoing on behalf of the Pentagon, just great investigative um, look at a drone strike that wiped out nearly an entire family in Afghanistan. So, you know, when you have that context in mind, it's not that surprising to read a story like this. And I do want to give the New York Times credit for when they get some really important reporting out there. You know, they don't always get it right. Certainly, they don't get it right when it comes to foreign policy issues oftentimes. But in this case, I think it's important for Americans to understand, you know, when we talk about the atrocities carried out by Assad, I think it's important to acknowledge that and not minimize it or pretend like it doesn't exist because that's insulting to the people of Syria, insulting to the people who have lost family members as a result of his brutality. But I've always uh, remained consistent in not in not wanting the United States to intervene in these types of conflicts because the United States never intervenes with the thought of human rights in mind. Uh, if they had that kind of mentality, if that was really the purpose or the objective of the United States military, um, they wouldn't uh, try to cover up these types of disgusting drone strikes, which take place all the time. Kale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it seems totally insane and and senseless and just downright evil. I think it's because it is, I mean, there it's like, it's kind of our continued like military presence in this part of the world truly just is kind of mind blowing because like at some level, you know, we've covered before, you know, like who profits off of this, but I really think it's like, it's a portion of the American ruling class. It's not even, most of the ruling class. I, I really think that like at this point, uh, actually Andrew Coburn, who we had on a few weeks ago, made this point that it's like the the military budget keeps going up year after year, almost unexplainably as well. And then 
uh, the fact is that they have all of these resources and they decide we have to put them to use. And so they end up creating greater conflict and greater war because they need to actually use all this stuff that they just purchased. Uh, but it's not like the U.S. is not trying to colonize Syria. It's not trying to like spread democracy, obviously. It's not trying right. to spread humanitarianism. It's not like Syria is not like a major threat to American capitalist interests. It's not like, you know, you could say at some level, there's some kind of geopolitical, you know, maneuvering of, I don't, I mean, I think like you could definitely say that about Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and again, we'll talk to Tariq in a little bit about Afghanistan, but uh, at this point, I think like a lot of this is just like, they have this equipment, they're going to keep using it. Like they're just going to keep like, destroying these countries and these people's lives. Uh, and, uh, and obviously nothing's going to happen to these people because like, that's it. There is kind of this structural incentive to keep this going. And yet there's nothing that holds these people accountable. There's no true counterweight because locally, you know, this is like, at this point, Syria is barely a country. They have like, there's barely anything like resisting us locally. And then domestically, we just don't have a true anti-war movement or, or, or like, you know, a left in, in power or in government that can like actually, you know, put some checks on, on the, this military power and this, like, you know, just this grotesque, horrible international militarism. It's, it's just, it's a situation where like this terrible, horrible thing happens. It, there's nothing there to stop it. And it doesn't really, it's not even like, I think like people will go too far and say like, because something horrible is happening, it must be because like, you know, it's, it's the system needs it or that like the ruling class broadly like really wants this. And I really think it's like a small chunk of people that are getting away because there's nothing that's going to stop this from happening. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, there was that story, his name escapes me at the moment, but the, there was a, Navy SEAL, essentially, who was uh, eventually pardoned by Donald Trump. Uh, and Navy SEALs who worked with him um, were the ones who turned him in because he mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, doing some pretty disgusting, terrible things to, um, I believe it was in Iraq. I apologize. I didn't expect to bring this up. Um, but I, it's, it's a relevant story because even when there are instances of maybe some accountability Mm-hmm. In the end, there's someone who lets them go free, even if they've been found to do pretty terrible things, whether it's intentionally targeting uh, civilians in Middle Eastern countries that we're occupying, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, like Abu Ghraib is a great example, mm-hmm. the way that we were treating. And by the way, the way that we're um, still detaining people in Gitmo, in Guantanamo Bay, and the United States government has acknowledged that many of those people um don't even really have any charges against them, but they just don't know what to do with them. So we literally have innocent people who are still locked away in Guantanamo Bay and the United States is just keeping them there because they're terrified of what kind of retaliation will come if they let them go. Yeah. Um, it's just insane. Absolute insanity. Um, but luckily, we're going to have uh, a longer discussion about this, maybe not in the context of Syria, but uh, in the context of Afghanistan mm-hmm. with Tariq Ali um, a little later in the show, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Um, One last yeah. quick thought on this. It's just it's there's something strange about this where it's the situation is almost in a 
like moment of being stuck. It's like, we can't get out of this. And it's, this is the problem we're facing across the board. Like if we just kind of zoom out of just like American foreign policy or militarism, like this is kind of part of the crisis of neoliberalism right now, where uh, it's the system has clearly like it's destroying most people's lives. It's crushing most people. And yet there's nothing that most people seem to be able to do to actually change this structure that it's, like the weight of the structure and the fact that like it has its own, like it has rules for why it keeps going. It has like certain incentives and punishments that are in place. Uh, It's just, it's, it's something that we cannot yet overcome. And yet we have to live with like, you know, all of the brutality that appears on a day-to-day basis. And, um, and in any one instance, it looks inexplicable that it doesn't make sense why we live in this horrible, cruel world. And yet uh, I think it largely, it's just, you know, it's these like manifestations of of like a, a system that is truly only benefiting a few people, and there's nothing really, and even like in there's in ways where like they're not even benefiting as much as they possibly could. I mean, uh, there's you know, everyone is kind of stuck in just the sheer weight of the structure of of whatever this kind of if you want to still call it neoliberalism or, or whatever it is, but. Uh, and and so, you know, as horrible as it is, it's, you know, it's not going to change fundamentally until there is some other kind of countervailing force. And so historically, that's been, you know, the power of, of organized labor uh, mm-hmm. and the creation of the welfare state. And hopefully that's, that's, it. that's I that's mean, it. hopefully that's what we're going to try to, you know, build towards. But that's those are the stakes, I think. Yeah, I um I've entered a a new phase of my political ideology. I don't know if it's a good phase or a bad phase, but um, look, I don't want to, I don't want to be one of those people who discourages voters from engaging in electoral politics. That's, that's not my objective and it never will be. But I personally think that relying heavily on electoral politics to solve our problems is the biggest mistake we can make. Like at this point, I mean, vote strategically, but I have no faith in the Democratic Party. Gone. Yeah. Absolutely gone at this point. So yeah. anyway. Well, in the in the very last thought, and then we'll and then we'll get on to our sponsor. But I mean it's it's a problem of insufficient democracy. It's like the fact is that like you can vote, but like the actual electoral system and the political system is set up such that like your ability to do something democratic in society is so limited that like the answer is an expansion of democracy and a good chunk yes. of that's going to have to be an expansion of democracy in the workplace. And so agreed. All right. So what are, what are the homies over at Verso up to? Oh, they're, they're up to their usual business. They got books for you. And uh, if you join the Verso book club, uh, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso book club members will also get 50% off everything on the website the Comrade tier is only $20 a month uh, for your first three months. And if you join in November, you will get these four books. Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough by Holly Jean Buck, A Political Case for Ending the Fossil Fuel Industry. Uh, space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space by Fred Sharman, A Radical History of Space Exploration from the Russian Cosmos to Elon Musk. The Anthropocene Unconscious, Climate Catastrophe and Contemporary Culture by Mark Bould, an exploration of how climate anxiety permeates our society. And finally, 
A new introduction of Dark Water Voices from Within the Veil by W.E.B. Du Bois, with a new introduction from award-winning poet and novelist Honoré Fanon Jeffers. So check out those books, uh, become a Verso Book Club member, and uh, I don't know, it's getting cold. You, you should all sit inside and read a little bit. It's good for yeah. you. Yeah. Kale, like, uh, you got to give you credit for the multitasking. You hear him clicking around, and it's because he's doing his typical job while doing the Verso Book Read um, simultaneously. That's impressive. Maybe I should stop being a brat and maybe I should do the forever so book read <laughs> whenever Nando's not here. Um, maybe I'll do that next time. No, no, no. This is this is this is a, a Nando me thing. This is you okay, know, this okay. is a little like friendly kind of like headbutting, you know. I'll yeah, I'll yeah. do this when he's not here and he knows that I'm taking on this responsibility and it's <laughs> I'm just implanting a little bit of guilt in his head. Oh, I love it. It sounds good to me. All right. Well, why don't we talk about um, the post office? Uh, because I was really happy to see that the Postal Service was in the news this week. It gave me an opportunity to uh, write a lengthier decode segment about it uh, this week. So um, let's get to it. Democratic Representative Katie Porter whipped out her famous whiteboard and grilled an official with the United States Postal Service rather than the usual corporate executive. But she had a good reason for doing so. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a Trump loyalist and a longtime Republican fundraiser and donor, changed Postal Service policies under his leadership, if you can call it that. And the results so far have been pretty disastrous. So disastrous, in fact, that it has led to an audit um, that was basically conducted to figure out why it's taking so damn long for Americans to get their mail. As Porter mentions via Twitter, on-time mail delivery has plummeted under Postmaster Louis DeJoy. Forcing veterans to wait longer for prescriptions, seniors to scramble to pay bills without their social security checks, and communities to feel less connected. Postmaster DeJoy needs to go. And I certainly agree with her, especially when we experience the debacle with the post office uh, right to right up to the lead up of the 2020 general election. Uh, DeJoy had uh, tried to decommission a bunch of mail sorting machines at a time when we knew there would be this massive influx of mail in ballots because of the pandemic. And uh, federal judges needed to get involved and basically force him to uh, put some of those machines back online. Now, Porter wanted to dig into the findings of the audit that I mentioned earlier. And so she started grilling Melina Perez. She's the USPS's deputy inspector general for auditing. Let's watch. The audit found that by the spring of 2020, mail delivery was right around 92%. That is about 92% of the mail got there within the standard of on time. That dropped to 80% by the fall of 2020, and by January of 2021 was hovering at around 61%. I realize this has gone up somewhat since then, but I wanted to ask you, when did Mr. DeJoy take over as postmaster? If you, do you know? At the summer of 2020. The summer of 2020. So June of 2020. And what happened after he took over? Did the rate of on-time mail delivery go up or down? Went down. And um, I'm a professor and I used to grade, grade, do a lot of grading. And 92% is, is considered widely like an A minus. 
Um, AB is considered hanging on, hanging on to the lowest possible B. 60% is at best a D minus. The Postal Service delivers 48% of the world's mail. Is an institution, it is a civic treasure, and we let it get all the way. What you found is we let it get all the way to that D minus level. I just, I love it when she gets that whiteboard ready because you know she's about to drop some really important facts. And look, as we've talked about on weekends before, the Postal Service is such a vital and critical government agency. We'll get into more details about that a little later. But uh, I do want to get back to DeJoy and what he has done because he has, in fact, had a negative impact on the Postal Service. um, And that negative impact has been pretty dramatic and swift. The USPS implemented new New service standards, for instance, that slow some first-class mail deliveries as part of efforts to reduce red ink uh, regulations, of course. Now, the new standards uh, revised one to three-day service standards to one to five days, impacting about 40% of first-class mail. He made other notable changes as well. USPS's uh, slowdowns have been a recurring issue since the summer when DeJoy implemented a slew of cost-cutting measures that suddenly and severely degraded delivery services. Uh, His policies prohibited delivery trucks from waiting for late mail or making extra trips. He dismantled sorting machines, cut overtime, and reduced hours at retail post office locations. Predictably, these changes created massive backlogs and rapidly diminished on-time delivery rates. DeJoy seems pretty giddy at the fact that the Postal Service is struggling under his leadership. Professor Richard Wolf explains why. Conservatives repeat that government services are poor, overpriced, etc., Once in power, gut government services uh, or service quality, so public buys higher cost private services. U.S. Post Office, latest example, UPS, FedEx, etc., latest winners, the people lose. Now, it's particularly particularly important for Richard Wolf to bring up this point in the context of a story involving Postmaster uh, Louis DeJoy because he is very much tied up with the private companies that the U.S. Post Office um, serves as a, comp- a competitor to. Now, um, I do want to also talk a little bit about how the post office is run or has standards that are very different from other government agencies. In fact, in 2021, the post office has, in fact, been struggling. It's been a tough year for the post office. As uh, Reuters reported, U.S. Postal Service reports 4.9 a billion in 2021 um, net losses, right? So first off, if you're talking about a government agency, why are you treating it as if it's a business entity that needs to turn a profit? No other government agency is treated that way. Um, And again, while the United States Postal Service is expected to run like a business, it's also worth mentioning that uh, previous Republican administrations have implemented certain regulations that private businesses certainly do not have to deal with. For instance, USPS has reported net losses of nearly $100 billion since 2007. That stems in part from 2006 legislation that required that the agency pre-fund 
pre-fund more than $120 billion in retiree health care and pension liabilities, a requirement that labor unions have called an unfair burden not shared by other businesses. So again, they have to deal with this insane regulation that forces them to prepay or prefund, I should say, um, hundreds of billions of dollars in um, health care and uh, pension liabilities. And then unlike any other government agency, the post office is supposed to be run like a business. It's incredible. So yes, while the Postal Service has been struggling thanks to the decisions uh, made by previous Republican administrations, Louis DeJoy is also intentionally accelerating and exacerbating things. So far, his leadership has amounted to making more cuts, raising prices. In fact, there was a story that was published just two days ago indicating that he was raising prices even more. And of course, he seems to love firing workers. Uh, DeJoy in March announced a plan to cut $160 billion in predicted losses over the next decade. He says, we have years of inflicted damage to fix that. Um, We have years of inflicted damage to fix that will necessitate us taking some continued uncomfortable actions. And look, it really shouldn't be surprising that the changes led by DeJoy would slowly dismantle the post office. I mean, all you really need to do is get to know who Louis DeJoy is, what his background is, and the businesses he has ties to. Watch. He took over his father's small and failing truck business and turned it into a multi-million dollar logistics company. As CEO and chairman of New Breed Logistics, DeJoy spent decades working with the U.S. Postal Service and companies like Verizon and Boeing. In 2014, he sold the company to XPO Logistics for $615 million, where he served as CEO for another year and change and on the board of directors until 2018. He and his wife have significant financial ties to companies that contract with or compete with the U.S. Postal Service, such as the shipping company UPS and the trucking company J.D. Hunt, according to filings with the Office of Government Ethics. And while federal records show DeJoy divested his stock in UPS before becoming Postmaster General, he still owns a large equity stake in his old employer XPO Logistics, also a Postal Service contractor. Ah, yes. I mean, conflicts of interest have run amok in Congress, uh, in most government positions at this point. Um, Certainly in the case of Louis DeJoy, we've talked uh, at length about how members of Congress are invested in individual stocks, which is absolutely insane because they determine legislation that impacts the very companies that they're personally invested in. I mean, these issues show how the system is intentionally set up So the people who are supposed to be looking out for us are actually working against us. And in this case, you have Louis DeJoy, who has um, a long history of financial ties to companies that want to see the United States Postal Service absolutely destroyed. Now, these conflicts of interest are pretty relevant. In fact, in late October, documents detailed the dozens, not just a few, the dozens of conflicts of interest that Louis DeJoy has today. Let's watch. Now, these internal documents were obtained under court order by the government watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, also known as CREW. Now, here's one example. In August 2020, J.P. Morgan Chase said it held talks with the Postal Service several months before about installing ATMs in post offices. At the time of those talks, DeJoy's financial interests in J.P. Morgan Chase was more than 
$15,000. They also show that DeJoy had conflicts of interest relating to the company where he served as a chief executive, XPO Logistics, a company that later received a $120 million contract from the Postal Service. The U.S. Postal Service maintains DeJoy acted in compliance with ethics regulations, saying in a statement, quote, when and how he divested reflects the process he was instructed to follow by the Postal Service Ethics Office in compliance with federal ethics regulations. Now, uh, some documents obtained by the New York Times shows that Louis DeJoy has, in fact, used his position as Postmaster General to engage in what appears to be self-dealing. The United States Postal Service has paid about $286 million over the past seven years to XPO Logistics, the former employer of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. He still holds at least $30 million to, by the way, $75 million uh, in stakes in the company, which has ramped up its business with the Postal Service since he took the helm at the agency. Uh, The Times also reports the documents also show a surge in revenue for XPO from the Postal Service since Mr. DeJoy took over. The Postal Service paid XPO Logistics and its subsidiaries about $14 million over just 10 weeks in 2020, compared with $3.4 million during the same time frame in 2019 and $4.7 million in 2018. Now, controversially, uh, his companies uh, still hold active service contracts with uh, the United States Postal Service. I I mean, the fact that that's even allowed is insane. Obviously, this creates a situation where self-dealing can happen. And if you're wondering how much longer Louis DeJoy intends on staying in the role of Postmaster General, well, he made clear in February of this year that he doesn't plan on going anywhere. How much longer are you planning to stay? a long time. Get used to me. As long as the board approves your staying? That's the, as far as my commitment to see our plan through, uh, uh, I'm here until I can see it tangibly produce the results we intended to. So, look, what can the Biden administration, this Democratic administration, Uh, do about this? What can he do about Louis DeJoy? Well, unfortunately, uh, all you need to do is look at his uh, job performance so far and you'll get the answer. Um, He's not able to do much. (laughs) And in this case, it's because of how the system is set up. In other cases, it doesn't seem like he fights pretty aggressively for his own agenda. But nonetheless, um, he can't unilaterally decide to remove DeJoy from Uh, his position as Postmaster General. Um, The only person who can do that, or the only people who can do that, um, are the Board of Governors. The only thing that Biden can do is appoint the individuals who serve on that board. Now, DeJoy was selected by the USPS Board of Governors, all of whom, by the way, had been appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, While the president can fire other high-ranking executive officials at will, Federal law bars the president from terminating the postmaster general under any circumstances. Biden can attempt to oust DeJoy indirectly, but that option is fraught with legal uncertainties and certain to trigger Republican complaints of norm busting. The only people, as I mentioned, 
who can do anything about this um, happen to be the USPS Board of Governors. And um, this all, ironically, is due to the fact that um, there was congressional action back in 1970 that was meant to kind of insulate the post office from political influence in the executive branch. In 1970, to oversee USPS's activities, Congress established a nine-member Board of Governors who are nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate. No more than five members of the board may belong to the same political party. Once confirmed to the board, governors can only be removed by the president for cause. That means their jobs are un- are safe unless the president can show that they engaged in malfeasance or extreme neglect of duty. Slate continues to write that the board of governors in turn selects the postmaster general who is not subject to Senate approval. And once appointed, the postmaster general can only be removed by the board though it need not justify its reason. Now, there's a little bit of good news, but don't hang on to the good feelings too long. Uh, because Biden's uh, Biden recently appointed nominees to the USPS Board of Governors, um, and they saw uh, Senate confirmations just this past summer, strengthening the possibility that the board, which is now composed equally of Democrats and Republicans, will look at the audit's findings and return joy to sender. That would be really nice, but there is unfortunately a problem. There was one Democrat appointed to the uh, board of governors by Donald Trump. Wow, a Democrat. That's surprising. That's pretty shocking, right? Except this Democrat is actually pretty damn conservative. Uh, He is unlikely to go against Louis DeJoy. Uh, He has actually stood up for Louis DeJoy in the past. Now, um, The other thing that's pretty unfortunate is that we have a lot on the line, especially when it comes to a government agency that provides such a vital service to Americans. When a letter is mailed, it joins over 600 million pieces of mail to and from destinations all over the nation and the world that are handled every day by the U.S. Postal Service. That is an excess of 40% of the entire world's mail volume. Your letter is then transferred by one of the Postal Service's 200,000 motor vehicles to its first stop, one of 40,000 United States post offices. It takes a workforce of 800,000 people to keep the mail moving making the Postal Service the largest civilian employer in the U.S. You guys, the post office is lit. I mean, it is such a wonderful agency that does so much important work. And it's incredibly important for the Biden administration uh, to ensure that the Board of Governors takes a good hard look at what Louis DeJoy has been doing recently to dismantle this vital service. And look, it really doesn't take much to uh, find someone better than Louis DeJoy for this role. In fact, even Joe Rogan would be a better replacement. Do they do the post office well? No. Yes. Like, what do they do well? They do the post office pretty good, actually. But guess what? If the post office closed tomorrow, it would be all right. You'd still get mail. Get, would Amazon suck. would pick. No, it wouldn't. Amazon would, would pick that up. You'd have to send things through UPS. It would cost a lot more. It wouldn't, though. Competition would start kicking in. And between UPS and FedEx and Amazon and drones and blah, Pause blah, it. blah. And DA- I'm sorry. I, could you imagine if I, as a socialist, was just like, and then, like, the profit motives are official, and then you'd, like, like make it public, and then it's just, like, kick in and, like, drones and blah, blah, blah. 
He literally just said, and Rogan was right, of course, but of course didn't even address like, oh, there'd be massive swaths of the country where there wouldn't be any delivery because it doesn't make any economic sense to provide that delivery to the fact that the U.S. Postal Service is actually, actually predates almost all major institutions in this country. It's actually written into federal law. It helped. Um, it actually helped us during other uh, banking crises, uh, and actually does work well today. I guess besides like the ever-present threat of you know waiting in line for a couple of minutes. So I think uh, that list of all the uh, incredible things that the post office does, but typically doesn't get credit for, uh, was a good list shared by the late, great Michael Brooks. And uh, he's not the only one who had uh, love for the post office. So does super producer uh, Kale Brooks, who's going to join me now and uh, talk about it a little bit. So Kale, did I deliver? I know you like uh, segments on this topic. Oh, we. I think we can correctly say that we delivered. This the, nice. the USPS might be having trouble because of uh, deregulation and defunding. I'm just I'm beating the the joke, but we delivered. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um, it's it's pretty wild. I'm gonna be like the thing that honestly came to my mind while I was watching your segment. This, this sounds like it's coming out of left field, but I promise you it's not. Because um, I was reading recently about. Uh, post-colonial states, states that uh, after colonialism ends and they're now trying to formulate their own countries, they're trying to have sovereignty, they're trying to like build up their industry, all that. Um, And a lot of the world, uh, especially in places like uh, Africa, for instance, um, you have these situations where there really isn't a new group of people who are able to just take the reins of the country uh, and the elites in those countries basically just um, use the the state as just like a rent seeking uh, uh, institution where they're just they're basically going in, taking what they can, using the state just for their very specific narrow interests. And, you know, to the detriment of not just like ordinary people. I mean, that happens, you know, that happens in capitalism pretty regularly, but to the detriment of like economic growth broadly, uh, that like it actually it was this really regressive situation and there's like structural reasons for why that is. And it's not worth going into, you know, too much, but the point is, is that like what we're seeing in these, like someone like a DeJoy, uh, you know, they're in there, they're, you know, wrecking havoc, they're doing whatever they want. It's like the problem, like you're saying is there's this massive lack of democratic accountability. There's this massive lack of, real democratic costs for them doing this that really uh they can these people can go in there and just like dismantle the state all they want uh and biden i mean i i obviously agree like he's no he's no you know he's not a bernie sanders obviously um but uh in some ways the fact that he's picking and choosing his fights on like infrastructure and on the the social spending and and failing uh, at you know delivering what he's been fighting for, um, and then you have all of this other stuff that's just collapsing around him. Uh, he doesn't have the means to deal with these things, and it's because there really aren't means right now in American mm-hmm. politics. There is no counterweight. That's like I, we said this earlier in the show, but that, like that is fundamentally the problem. Where like we're like we don't like we barely even have true democracy, and so these elites, these you know like. Uh, you know, 
some of them are like major corporations and capitalists. And some of them are just like these like kind of petty grifters, these vultures that swoop in and, yes. and take what they can of a carcass, basically finish the analogy. Uh, and what can we do? I mean, there really isn't something right now that's available for us to do something about this. And it's, it makes you want to pull your hair out. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And, you know, I, I understand and I definitely empathize. Like I feel the rage that people feel when they watch a video of Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema just like brazenly dismiss their own constituents or um, not give in to any of the co- like just constant pressure on social media to, to, to vote in favor of the budget reconciliation bill. I understand that frustration, mm-hmm. but I'm also hoping that people understand that you have like, to me, I don't, I don't even like to think of lawmakers as good or bad, good mm-hmm. or evil. That doesn't even matter. Right. Take a step back and look at the incentives and disincentives. Mm-hmm. On one hand, you have atomized constituents who are full of rage. And I, and I completely empathize with that. But they're not organized, they have no power, and they're atomized. Mm -hmm. Then you go to the incentives that these lawmakers have. And it's their personal investments in the stock market. It's the the corporate donors who do not want them to pass any type of social spending plan that could increase their taxes, right? So this is all about incentives and disincentives. I think you also add a really good point about the... um, lack of democracy, right? Um, How democracy needs to be expanded. But in order to even get to that point where we can expand democracy, we need organized labor. Really, that's the only thing that I can see as as a real uh, step forward. And that I think for a lot of people, it sounds discouraging because organizing takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. But there really are no easy answers to what we're going through right now. And, And I always say this, we have to look to solutions that have worked in the context of our own country in the past. Mm -hmm. And really the only time um, this country has secured any, any power, any rights, any economic policies that actually benefit ordinary people was when we had organized labor. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, so we should, uh, Nando has a segment today and I'm going to pull that up in a second because I want to make sure that we don't go over on our time with, uh, Tarek Ali, who's coming up in a moment. Um, this is obviously pre-recorded, uh, but uh, you'll see us. You'll see us back in a moment. I hope you enjoy Nando's thoughts on mass incarceration and, and our horrific carceral state. One of the biggest and thorniest stories of the pandemic has been the shocking increase in crime, especially murders. It's been a year of brazen violence nationwide. 23 shot, including three killed outside a nightclub in Florida. A man opens fire at a convenience store in Washington. And in Philadelphia, a shooter in a car fires on a group. Six were shot, one died. Like everyone I know in Philadelphia, I'm outraged by this. Over 400 people have been killed in Philadelphia this year alone. What can we do to prevent the next murder by gun? The murder rate soared in 2020 up 30%, the largest increase ever. Cities like Memphis, Milwaukee, and Des Moines all set records. The largest increase in murder ever. Now, Jacobin's new issue is dedicated to the issue of crime and how we on the left should think about a topic that is typically fertile ground for the right. 
A lot of liberals and even left leftists have been skeptical about the crime wave, but the numbers seem undeniable. As Benjamin Fogel, who guest edited the issue, notes in his introduction, quote, last year, 21,570 people were murdered in the United States, the largest single year surge in the country's history and an increase of 4,901 killings from 2019. Last year also saw the highest number of gun deaths in history. The overwhelming majority of these deaths were concentrated in America's poorest and most racially segregated neighborhoods. It's not surprising that commentators are speculating about whether we're set for a return to the bad old days of the 1980s and 90s. You mean the bad old days when McGruff, the crime dog, was taking a bite out of crime? Yes, special delivery. Hold it. I'm uh, McGruff, the crime dog. This was Detroit two years ago. John Petros was wounded, the crook got away, and our crime business was booming. I couldn't afford to leave, and I didn't want to leave. We might want to patrol up and down the alley. So John and his neighbors fought back. So everyone understand your assignment for this evening? Together with the cops, they formed a neighborhood watch program. Uh, That's uh, John and his neighbor Walter today on the CB patrol. When they spot a suspect... They call the cops, and the cops are on their way. Hey, that's pretty fast, guys. Since this neighborhood program began, crime in John's neighborhood dropped 50% and property values doubled. We made a difference. And you can, too. So find out more. Take a bite out of crime. Take a bite out of crime, man. I remember those commercials so well. If you don't know about McGruff, the crime dog, please check out his album of anti-drug songs for children. From the year 1986, you will not be disappointed. But as Benjamin Fogel notes, while the overall crime rate is down from the 1990s levels, the murder rate is up. And crucially, people's perception is that crime is way up. Quote, Americans believe that crime is getting worse. A 2020 Gallup poll found that 78% thought crime had increased over the course of that year, the highest number recorded since 1993. It is hard not to see the election of figures like Eric Adams as New York mayor as not at least in part, driven by crime concerns. In the run-up to his election, one survey found that 46% of likely voters said crime or violence is a main problem in New York today. Understanding the root causes of crime is crucial to combating the politics of crime, which, like I said, is typically fertile ground for the right. The first thing to acknowledge is the staggering levels of violence in the United States. As Adana Usmani points out, quote, Despite the decline of crime in recent decades, the United States remains an extraordinarily violent place. It is still the most violent society in the developed world, and by far. Almost 13,500 people were murdered in 2015, of which more than half were African American. Black men in the United States face El Salvador-level murder rates. Now, the question is, why? Well, one obvious answer is the sheer number of guns in the United States, which is unrivaled in the developed world. There are 120 guns for every 100 residents in America, and I'm no math whiz, but that comes out to more guns than people. The presence of a gun makes any confrontation or disagreement a potentially deadly one. But while the presence of massive amounts of guns explains the United States' violence vis-a-vis the rest of the world, it doesn't explain the fluctuations of violence within the United States. The right tends to blame violent crime on culture, as in rap music and baggy clothes make black people more violent than nice whites. That's obviously nonsense. On the left, broadly speaking, we believe that violent crime stems from social oppression. 
The thing is that the violent crime wave began rising dramatically in the 1960s, which is generally seen as an era of ascendant social democracy with civil rights passing and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. Right-wingers point out that it was all that lefty gobbledygook that led to the rise in crime, but is that true? To get to the answer, we have to look a little deeper. According to Adana Rizmani, who is an assistant professor of sociology at Harvard, the rise in crime was real, and it was driven by social oppression. He writes, quote, our view is that to understand the reasons for the rise in violence to exceptional levels, one has to understand certain exceptional facts about American economic development. We all know that America's industrial boom is a story of the late 19th and early 20th century. Industry in the United States was taking off, with America becoming an economic power in the world. Key to our story is the observation that in the United States, this process unfolds differently than it does elsewhere. European countries all industrialized with their own peasantries. But in the United States, the peasantry was locked in the Jim Crow South in the plantation economy. They didn't migrate north in large numbers to take those jobs. Plantation owners were adamant that they stay. So the booming industries in, in the north sought labor where they could find it, Italian and Polish immigrants and whoever else. The reason this is so important to the story of crime is that it is at the heart of the labor market difficulties that African-Americans confront once they do later migrate to American cities. Jobs from the first wave of industrialization didn't employ African-Americans in substantial numbers. Once Jim Crow collapsed and African-Americans finally came to the North in large numbers, those jobs had begun to disappear. What's more, African-Americans arrived in cities and labor markets in which European immigrants had already established themselves and in which they used America's highly local institutions to hoard jobs, housing, access to schooling, and other scarce resources. So basically, the rise in crime and the subsequent crackdown that led to mass incarceration is a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, but not in the way the popular narrative thinks it is. Basically, by the time Jim Crow was being dismantled and African-Americans migrated in great numbers, not just to the northern industrialized cities, but off the southern countryside and into the southern cities, the jobs were almost all gone. Because America locked its black underclass to work in the land in the American South, it needed to import workers from places like Ireland and Italy to feed its growing industrial might. They then gobbled up the jobs and left black people displaced in ghettos in the major cities which led to the kind of desperation and social alienation that leads to crime. And if you fast forward to today, you see that the coronavirus pandemic has slammed poorer neighborhoods. Most of our patients are poor. Uh, most of our patients live in health deserts. Uh, most of uninsured or underinsured. Uh, most are unemployed and have other disproportionate impact, what we call social determinants of health. Here in Washington and elsewhere across the country, high-quality primary and preemptive care can often be absent and unaffordable in poorer neighborhoods and communities. The economic impact has been brutal and unequal. According to a study by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, quote, minorities were hit harder by the pandemic, largely due to an industry occupation composition effect. For example, their disproportionate presence in service industries, the leisure and hospitality industry, and the other services industry. Urban areas, especially city centers, were hit the hardest, and the effects still remain. And it's been urban areas, especially the city centers, where the murder rate has skyrocketed, and the victims are often poor, black, and brown people. Khalil Akori's 19-year-old son, Wanye, dreamed of becoming a journalist, 
In his free time, he loved playing basketball in their Minneapolis neighborhood. That's kind of how, you know, um, my neighborhood got to know us. I was the mother, the single mother with five, and the boys outside playing basketball. On October 11th, Corey got a text from Wanye saying he was heading home after playing at a nearby court. It was my middle child's birthday. He was turning 12. And later on that day, we were going to celebrate at home like we do. Um, we, were wait- we were waiting for Wanye to come. When he didn't come, it was, it was devastating. Wanye had been killed in a drive-by shooting. Minneapolis, still reeling from this summer's police killing of George Floyd, has had 80 murders so far this year, a level not seen since the 1990s. Despite the uptick, the Minneapolis City Council voted unanimously earlier this month to shift nearly $8 million from next year's police budget. I spoke with Corey, who's an early education teacher, by Skype. I mean, what do you think happened? I don't even know. I mean, just from what I'm hearing from, like, you know, the police, like, mistaken identity. Like, what happened to him is unexplainable. They don't have any leads. Tragically, Kalila Corey has felt this pain before. She grew up on Chicago's west side and lost two brothers to gun violence. She says she moved her family to Minneapolis six years ago in hopes of giving her children a better life. So it's just, it's more, more trauma on top of trauma, on top of trauma. And I I just, I don't want my kids to live in fear. So the question becomes, what is the solution? Well, definitely we need to try to do something about guns. Although the practicality of getting the hundreds of millions of weapons off the street is daunting to say the least. But we also need, broadly speaking, actual social democracy in this country that is evenly distributed across the entire population. A real social safety net that provides security for people and services that can provide health care, jobs, and an ability to live a secure, comfortable life. So why do politicians not do that? Why is the response to crime always more punitive state violence? Well, the short answer is that it's cheaper. According to Adana Rizmani, again, quote, arresting, sentencing, and imprisoning criminal offenders is far cheaper than social democracy. Even today in the meager American welfare state, the money spent on punitive institutions is far exceeded by the money spent on social programs. Over the last three decades, state and local governments have spent only about 4% of their total outlay on police and 3% on prisons. At the federal level, these numbers were vanishingly small, roughly 0.5% and 0.2% respectively. In 2014, for every dollar spent on police, prisons, and the court system, the government at all levels spent more than 12 on social programs. Okay, so it's expensive, but it definitely seems worth it. Social democracy is great. Well, here's a donor. The reason why this doesn't happen is because in a capitalist society, revenue is in the hands of the rich. Politicians are hesitant to tax elites since taxation threatens investment, and any threat to investment is a threat to economic stability. Where they have done so, it is generally because disruptive mass movements of ordinary people have forced their hands. The movements of the 1930s and 1960s dragged social democratic demands into the American mainstream and won several important concessions. But by the end of the 1960s, neither the political nor economic signs were propitious. 
The civil rights movement had crested a few years earlier. Its left-wing elements were trying but failing to craft a strategy to take the struggle to the northern ghettos and black working class. The labor movement was large but ossified. Meanwhile, crucially, the profit rate had fallen from its peak and imperialist adventures in Vietnam had drained the state's exchequer coffers, I guess, in the American parlance. Investment was slowing in this inhospitable soil. Social democracy could not take root. So instead of social democracy, we got mass incarceration. Now, we should be clear-eyed about the real effects of crime, especially on the working class. There is an instinct to say that this is all manufactured outrage pushed by Fox News, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Poor people definitely suffer from crime, as they do from poverty. To fix crime, we need to fix poverty. And to do that, we need to massively redistribute the wealth and power in this country from the few to the many. Yeah, it's um, it, like you said, it's it's daunting what's in front of us in order to tackle this. But it seems like the worst response possible that the left could have is to just say it's not a problem. That yeah. like even if even if we think even if like we have the data and we can say, in fact, it's not a problem, even if for some, if, if that was true. And, and I think the data actually shows that there is a real problem, but even if that was true, why would we say to these people that we want to bring into our political coalition? Yeah. Your issues don't really matter to us. What you think and what you feel doesn't really matter. Like it is the most tone deaf possible response to this problem. Uh Yeah. It's it ha- you see that's a latent sync not just on this issue but on a lot of issues. Uh, I find it's like you know your concerns are not important or they're fake or they're uh, a right wing conspiracy or uh, whatever. This happens uh, not just with this issue but with a lot of issues, and it's just it's always kind of maddening when it when you see that. Like you have to you know to convince people, you kind of have to absorb like their uh concerns and then try best you can to channel their uh their concerns into something productive yeah and and the problem is that liberals cannot address this problem because like you're saying like like what adonner's saying at the end of the piece and it's the fact that the real problem here is the fact that mass incarceration is cheaper and capitalists, the ruling class in this country, the people who actually, uh, you know, own all the stuff and make the investment decisions and therefore have, you know, a great deal of power over politicians to tell them what to spend on, what not to spend on, whether or not budgets are going to increase or not. Uh, they don't want social democracy. They don't want the spending. They obviously don't want the power that it would give to working people. And so all of these liberal solutions that are mostly focused on change people's culture or uh, some kind of community uplift program where, you know, we're going to empower people and and make them feel better about the fact that they live in poverty without actually getting rid of the actual poverty in these situations. Uh, It's, it cannot deal with the problem and you're going to continue to get these horrific violent outcomes, especially in inner cities. Yeah. I mean, I I also like we, I didn't include it in the piece, but like a Donner's point about how, um, white flight from the American cities uh, basically collapsed the tax base for local politicians um, starting in the 1950s uh, and, and into the 1960s um, is a point that like once you hear it, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like these politicians um, that ran the cities uh, all of a sudden have their tax base kind of removed uh, and they have to deal with the effects of crime. So like, what do they do if they can't tax 
because all the rich people have gone out to the suburbs, which have their own, um, you know, local institutions and, and, and they tax themselves in those, uh, in those districts, um, what are they going to do? Well, the, the, the solution seems obvious. It's like you just ramp up the carceral state because it's so cheap. Right. Yeah. And crucially, like, you know, the explanation for, you know, the carceral state, when it, when it is connected to white flight, it, the explanation is, oh, well, it's because of racism, that it's because uh, white people in America, in fact, want to, you know, punish black people, you know, across the board and, and that this was all intentional, that there was like a, a conscious effort to, to install this uh, situation. But it's just clearly not the case that, like, if, if people are, in fact, moving out to the suburbs, whites, uh, you know, urbanites are now becoming suburbanites because of the fact that they happen to be the ones who, because of Jim Crow, because, like, there is a historical legacy, have greater resources and, and income and can do that. Uh, then the like the not so conscious, the actual just kind of like objective reality is that then capital calls the shots more uh, when you have a lower tax base for the state. The state cannot coerce the you know the business owners in you know because they have nothing they, they have no leverage. They have nothing that they can do to tell these corporations pay your fair share so that we can like have proper. Uh, you know, uh, infrastructure and, you know, high employment. Don't, haven't these people watched uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It, it wasn't uh, the racist. I mean, there, I'm sure there were plenty of racists who did yeah. white flight, but it was a conspiracy between the auto manufacturers and the tire companies to create the American suburb. America's the only country, only country that has cities with these like fucking giant suburbs and all the other countries uh, in, the, in the developed world. The desirable place to live is in the city center not in the not in the outskirts of the city and the outskirts of the city traditionally is where the working class live uh america has it completely backwards uh and it's because of roger rabbit so if you don't know what i'm talking about go watch the movie it's one of my favorite movies and i i the, the economics it's the of best it went over my head as a child so. yeah i had no idea what i just that, that's the trick is you make the villain so just scary that the actual scheme doesn't matter because christopher yeah. lloyd in that movie was absolutely terrifying when I was a kid. And I had no idea about the, you know, it's like trading places. Like no one knows what the scheme is in trading places, but it doesn't matter because, uh, because the movie just works. Uh, but yeah. Uh, the other movie that kind of explains this phenomenon is, is for lack of a better term. And I don't want to turn this into uh, a jokerified stream, but uh, is the Joker. Uh, <laughs> the Joker actually does get at this. The, the politics of the Joker are pretty spot on. This show has um, been Jokerfied, Nando. It's been Jokerfied. Yeah. 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 I know. I know. All right. Um, maybe I'll weigh in on that segment a little later. I thought it was well done. Uh, but for now, why don't we get to our interview? Um, I'm pleased and honored to uh, introduce uh, Tariq Ali, uh, who has written more than two dozen books um, on world history and politics, including The Clash of Fundamentalisms. The Obama Syndrome and the Extreme Center. He's a longstanding member of the editorial committee of New Left Review. And his latest book uh, out this month is The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold. Tariq, thank you so much for joining us. Very good to be with you. Uh, 
first, let me just say that your book is fantastic. I highly recommend everyone, um, you know, buy a copy of the 40 year war, especially considering Afghanistan um, being in the news more lately uh, because of the U.S. troop withdrawal. And, you know, you call it the 40 year war, which is a great title because you're not just talking about the U.S. invasion in uh, 2002. You also write about uh, how the United States uh, was very much involved in building up the Taliban uh, in order to fight off uh, the Soviets who had taken control of Afghanistan. Can you um, elaborate on that history a little bit? Um, it's a long history, as, as, as you know. Uh, but basically, uh, during the Cold War, the Iranian regime, which was then run by the king, the Shah of Iran, under U.S. advice and pressure, wanted to get rid of the left, which was getting strong in Afghanistan and was quite dominant in the army and the air force. And in order to prevent uh, the president of the country, who was heavily under the Shah's pressure, the there was a coup d'etat organized by left-wing officers uh, in the army and left-wing uh, air force uh, leaders inside the air force, and they took charge of the country. And effectively, what they promised uh, was social democracy which we've been hearing about, uh, they didn't promise a large-scale revolution. They just said there would be fundamental changes and Afghanistan would be modernized, there would be democracy rest, uh, in the country, etc., etc. Uh, but it got out of control. The left-wing party was divided into two factions, and as often happens uh, with factional disputes inside a party, they start fighting each other instead of the common enemy. It's a sort of habit of the left, uh, whatever its politics in different parts of the world. And they did this in Afghanistan. And when the faction fight led to the death of the president, Taraki, the Russians moved in to try and stabilize the situation. I was very disturbed by this and thought it wouldn't go well. Afghanistan was not a hugely advanced country. The bulk of the people lived in the countryside. The structures were tribal uh, and people were very religious. You know, whether you like it or not, that was a fact. And these groups had started to fight against the progressive military regime uh, in Kabul and Kandahar, but they were looking for something to use as an excuse, as a weapon, as a scapegoat to win over more support. And the Soviet troops and the entry of the Soviet Union became that. Uh, it unified a large chunk of the population, the slow and the religious group said, we've been occupied by atheists. It wasn't so much communism. We've been occupied by atheists. They're going to destroy everything. And the United States, of course, helped in this propaganda. And uh, a civil war began in which the United States played a huge part in arming Pakistan and the military dictatorship in that country to try and defeat the Russians. And um, President Carter's 
leading advice on foreign policy, uh, Brzezinski, actually said he did a big bear crack for Russians to come in and they walked straight in. And we had been helping these people to trap the Russians, and they fell they fell into our trap. And when the French journalist interviewing Brzezinski said, hey, but the result of this has been a huge increase of jihadi terrorism, Brzezinski replied very contemptuously. He said, oh, what are a few jumped-up Muslims compared to the defeat we've inflicted on the Soviet Union? And uh, I did write in the book uh, that this is a question which should be asked to New Yorkers who suffered from the backlash of what they did, the jumped-up Muslims who then hit uh, Twin Towers and the Pentagon. Um, you know, uh, so that is uh, what happened. And then after the hits of 9-11, the U.S. decided to intervene again, this time to defeat the people who they'd put into power because they had not expected al-Qaeda, which they'd funded and armed, whose leaders they'd supported, to hit them. So they then invaded Afghanistan as a crude war of revenge. It's what I wrote at the time, and now Joe Biden has admitted it. It was nothing more than revenge. And the question arises, Anna, that if it was nothing more than revenge, why the hell did you spend 20 years there killing people, destroying and harming the ecology, spending trillions, the costs of air conditioning alone for the troops who were stationed there during the summer months uh, was huge. And nothing was done to improve the conditions of the people of Afghanistan, either men or women or the population as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I worked out once with Afghan friends that it would have cost $5,000, that is all, to build a solid mud house made with mud bricks to house a family of four or five people, if and even more. They could have done it. They didn't want to do it. Because if you don't have social democracy at home, you're fighting against it. You don't want state money spent on creating better conditions for your own people. Why the hell should you do it in Afghanistan? And so the situation became a disaster. Absolutely. I mean, you, you talk about... The uh, invasion in 2002 is retaliation for what happened um, on 9-11. And uh, the individuals who really suffered the brunt of that retaliation were the civilians of Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I'd like you to kind of get into the uh, death tolls, because, you know, when you compare... Uh, we, we oftentimes in the United States hear about the number of um, U.S. military casualties, uh, but they certainly, as, as tragic as their deaths are, um, it's really the numbers are nothing compared to civilian deaths of Afghans. That has been true with U.S. interventions from Vietnam onwards. I mean, if you look at the uh, casualty figures in Vietnam, it was, what, I think 50,000 U.S. troops dead and Two million Vietnamese. The Vietnamese counted their own debt, so we know. Similarly, in Iraq, at least a million and a half people killed. American casualties compared to this are virtually nothing. Uh, 
And the same in Afghanistan. Um, the U.S. casualties and NATO casualties are relatively low because of new forms of warfare, uh, the emergence of drones, bombing from the air. But the number of Afghans who died, their bodies weren't counted. The rough figures that we get from medical experts and others who worked in Afghanistan are that at least a 100,000 Afghans, if not more, died uh, during the NATO occupation of that country. They included women, children, old men, uh, and, of course, the people who began to... uh, oppose the um, the occupation and fight back. So my own feeling is it's probably un- an underestimate that you probably had closer to 200,000 people dead and double that number injured, wounded. And if you add to that that this is a country which is known malnutrition, and at the same time, as food was being flown in from the Gulf states uh, <clears throat> and elsewhere, uh, the Afghans had no food at all. The malnutrition became worse over the last 20 years. Uh, the only thing which registered a huge rise, Anna, and I think we should give credit where it's due, uh, is the, uh, the U.S. basically turning a blind eye to the production of the poppy, opium and heroin, uh, which the Taliban had managed to control, but which under the 20-year occupation grew to 90% of the world trade. And many in Afghanistan have become addicts, and many soldiers in the United States and Britain and the other NATO countries also became addicts. These are stories covered up. They haven't been properly investigated or done. But the price has been huge, mainly for the people of Afghanistan, but also for those who were sent there to fight for a nothing war, a war which now they all admit was not meant to achieve anything. I mean, when you look at so many different aspects of the war, you see how unbelievably counterproductive it was. Um, You know, you mentioned the uh, production of opium, and uh, that's, you know, certainly something that is not covered in um, any type of foreign policy reporting or international news reporting here in the United States. But you also um, weigh in on the impact that this war has had on women. And um, how sex work, for instance, uh, kind of exploded in in Afghanistan um, since the U.S. invasion in 2002. I want you to get into that in just a moment. But I also want to play this video because I thought that this was really mind blowing. I mean, we're talking about a, a war that has been a failed war. This is following the release of the Afghan papers, which we'll get into a little later as well. Uh George W. Bush does this interview uh, with Deutsche Welle and just completely refuses to take any responsibility for um, his own failures and just the fact that the Afghanistan Afghanistan war had been a failure. And so uh, just to give you all a little more context, uh, he's being asked about Angela Merkel's uh, critical statements about the Afghanistan war. And here's how he responds to it. I was very pleased. Uh, She was supportive of troops in Afghanistan. Um, by the way, and, and one of the reasons why uh, is because she saw the, uh, the progress that could be made for young girls and women in Afghanistan. It's unbelievable how that society changed from the brutality of the Taliban. And now all of a sudden, you know, sadly, uh, 
I'm afraid Afghan women and girls are going to suffer unspeakable harm. Is it a mistake, the withdrawal? I, I, you know, I think it is, yeah, I think, because I think the consequences are going to be unbelievably bad. Tariq, uh, he makes it appear as though U.S. military presence in Afghanistan has actually made um, the lives of women in Afghanistan much better. But what is the reality? I mean, it's staggering. I've not seen that interview before. You'd have thought that since he retired from the White House, he would have had some time for reflection on Afghanistan, Iraq, and all these other wars he got the country involved in. Well, he's been a little tied up with his uh, new painting hobby, so maybe it's, you know, a little busy with that. (laughs) But, I mean, what can you paint if you're that dumb, Anna? Right. the level of stupidity. I mean, I'd like to see his paintings to see see what, what, what the you know what they reflect. But anyway, it's complete nonsense what he's saying. What is true is that some NGOs in Kabul, Kandahar, Herat, and a few other cities spent money given by NATO states uh, to educate a handful of young uh, uh, girls, and that's good. Who can attack that? But the overall figures are damning. The people who the United States and the NATO countries were allied with, the Northern Alliance, had a position on women which was in practice even worse than the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban's positions I never supported and still don't. Uh, But they were very strong in punishing rape. I mean, in the sense that people were executed if they were caught raping boys or girls. Uh, The Northern Alliance used women uh, in the most disgusting way and in the countryside where the majority of the population lives Nothing changed. The condition of women wasn't altered. That's one point to make. The second point, I think, which Western politicians know full well but cover up, is that the condition of women in South Asia as a whole is not that brilliant. Qualitatively speaking, it's not better than the condition of women in Afghanistan. The horror stories you get from Pakistan, the number of rapes that take place every single week in India, the assaults on Tamil women in Sri Lanka, uh, the situation in Bangladesh used to be much, much better, but even there some women are under attack. So let us not say that this is something special. There is a huge problem in South Asia. No one ever talks about the other countries because they used this to try and justify the invasion of uh, Afghanistan. And if you're so concerned about Afghanistan, why not open the doors? Why not say to all the women or whoever who wants to leave, our doors are open? Instead, the refugees are being stopped from coming in. Britain is now offering money to the Albanians to take some in, refugees on their way here. There's a big fight going on between Poland uh, and Belarus 
uh, as to where the refugees should go. The European Union says we don't want any refugees, asking NATO to intervene militarily to stop refugees from coming in. This is the situation. So George Bush's hypocrisy, I mean, it's unbelievable that the guy is still living somewhere else. He has no idea of what is really going on. Exactly. Um, You know, let's talk a little bit about the aftermath of the U.S. military withdrawal, because there seemed to be some shock and surprise that the Afghan army folded immediately. And, um, you know, it was allegedly built, uh, I think built is a strong word, but over two decades. Um, And so uh, explain why the uh, Afghan army was um, willing to fold so quickly. You know, in your book, you you touch on the fact that uh, from the very beginning, uh, there were uh, Taliban um, spies who had infiltrated uh, the Afghan army. There were already issues with it from the very beginning. Exactly. And this is what the West doesn't realize. It's not just Western politicians in this case, but even ordinary people who just look at the propaganda on CNN or the BBC, which is non-stop pro-government, pro their own governments. And they cannot understand that there are people in this world who simply don't like being occupied. It's as simple as that. You go and occupy a country and you expect these people to love you. Why? What have you done that they should even look at you uh, with, uh, with, with affection? True, you buy a lot of them over. You give them money. And those who receive the money, even some of those hate you because they want to know why the hell you're there and what you're doing in that uh, uh, country. So from the beginning, uh, as I've argued in my book with you know, quotes and facts, there was not much support for this occupation, except by a handful of people, those who decided to collaborate with the United States. Um, and um, the result was that when the U.S. and NATO Uh, said, join the army, we're building a new police force, we're constructing a new army. The instructions the Taliban gave to their supporters, either hardcore supporters or just supporters in general, who backed them because they saw they were the only people resisting, uh, was, you're going to be trained to use the latest military equipment, go and join learn uh, what they're offering you, and then we'll see what happens in four or five years' time. And a lot of people who join these the, the army and other institutions, the police too, were Taliban supporters, eh? And secondly, even those who weren't, when they saw what had been happening in the country, they were all, you know, it had an impact on all of them, uh, said we're not going to die to defend the American empire. We're not going to die to defend NATO. Why should we? Enough of us have been killed as it is. And so we had this amazing sight of the minute the United States announced that they were withdrawing, um, the Taliban worked out a guerrilla strategy to take the country, starting from the north and moving south. Very, very intelligent. And city after city fell. No one fought back. The 300,000-strong puppet army that had been built over 20 years just collapsed. 
Much of it disappeared into thin air. Some of them joined the Taliban, and the others just said, we don't like the Taliban, but we're not going to fight against them. Why should we? Then don't underestimate the impact of the resistance on many people in Afghanistan who are not political, who say, well, whatever the Taliban is, they're the only people who defended us. They're the only people who resisted. And this raises a question which liberals find it difficult to answer, that if liberals and the left in Afghanistan, which effectively supported the occupation, had created resistance organizations, if some of the women trained in Kabul and Kandahar and given monies by the NGOs had actually set up groups like the Kurdish women did uh, uh, in, in Syria, Uh, and fought back, they would have people would have respected them much more. But they didn't. The entire fight back was left to the Taliban. So how could they not win? And within seven days, they'd rolled back a 20-year-old occupation. And then the United States and the European press got very angry, saying that, well, they'd agreed to work in a transitional government. And the Taliban replied, yeah, we had, but where is your government? It's fled. Ashraf Ghani, who was being praised in the entire Western media, packed his money boxes, you know, millions and millions of dollars into jeeps, flew to the airport, got hold of a helicopter which was waiting for him, packed it with his money and fled the country to a neighbor and from there uh, to the Arab world. That's where he is. So the Taliban said, who could we talk to? The president you'd put in place disappeared. The army you had built collapsed. So why attack us? Just ask yourself this question. How come this happened? So there was no one we could have a transitional government with. You know, this question's a little out of left field, but I'm curious if you were following it by any chance. Um, you know, the press in the United States, I believe it was the New York Times at the time, had published this article uh, during the Trump administration regarding the Russians paying uh, the Taliban bounties for U.S. soldiers. That story was later retracted. Um, and it was, I mean, it just seemed like complete and utter nonsense. Um, did you follow that story by any chance? And if you did, uh, what were your thoughts on it? As I uh, did as follow it, and I was shocked, because just on the face of it, it appeared to be a blatant lie. Right. Uh, in fact, what did happen, which wasn't reported uh, too often, Anna, was that a lot of Russians set up helicopter companies because they had pilots uh, who were very experienced in their own disaster story in Afghanistan. And now that they were privatized, uh, no longer controlled by the state, they actually went and fought with the Americans as mercenaries. That's what happened. So far from the Russians celebrating the death of a soldier, private Russians were trying to help the United States and earn a lot of money, which I'm told they did. Yeah, you're right. That is not something that has been reported on um, extensively here in the United States. And that's certainly a shame, which is why, you know, the, the books that you publish, the work that you do is so important. I want to get to the um, Afghan papers, uh, which were released in 2019. And... Uh, 
I mean, the revelations in um, the 2000 pages uh, of documents really made it abundantly clear that the uh, United States military really didn't even know what its objective was as this war continued. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the papers were, you know, devastating for those who didn't know what was going on. For some of us, they were a confirmation of what myself and some other journalists had been writing from the very beginning. They had no idea how long they were going to stay for. They had no idea what the objectives were. And Tony Blair's wife, Cherie, and George Bush's wife, Laura, saying that this was a war for women's liberation. I mean, it's just sickening, actually, to use women who have real problems in that part of the world and saying, we're coming to rescue you. Well, if that was the case, the war has been a failure 20 times over. Um, But the papers also revealed the army angry with the politicians, generals knowing that they could not win this war in the sense of taking they did what more could they do they've got the country they'd occupied it they were killing people their own people were being killed and the politicians were just uh, watching without a clue as to what needed to be done and it's actually it it was in 2019 i think that donald trump first said that there should be a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, if you look back at what happened, when Obama came to power, he had himself in his past, before he became president, not supported the war on Iraq, and he then divided these wars. Iraq was an unfortunate episode, not that he pulled out completely from there, the, uh, you know, in fact, launched wars in Syria and Libya. But... Um, Afghanistan was meant to be the good war. And the Afghanistan papers just asked the question, what war? How can it be a good war when we don't know what our aims are, what we're going to do, the amount of money we're spending? And it's a disaster on every level, military, political, economic, psychological. That is what the war was. And it was nice for us. Uh, who had been opposing the war to just read similar things being said by top the top military brass in the United States. They were not that dumb. They could see. Right. Yeah. In, in fact, I mean, when um, Trump would vocalize the need to pull out of Afghanistan, there was considerable backlash toward him uh, from U.S. politicians, including some Democrats uh, who, I mean, I think wanted to criticize Trump regardless of what he did or said. Uh, but I agreed with his decision to pull troops out of Afghanistan. Yeah. And uh, Biden really had no choice. I mean, that that deal was made prior to Biden getting elected and, and, and holding office. Um, so I, I wanted to also just kind of talk about the media spin um, that, you know, we witnessed uh, as troops were being withdrawn from Afghanistan. For instance, when uh, there were there was a suicide bombing, I, they say that it, it was an ISIS, uh, ISIS militant who uh, did a suicide bombing outside uh, the Kabul airport. Uh, there was this narrative regarding the Taliban potentially being um, in on that, that they were uh, conspiring with al-Qaeda. 
And I, I'd love to hear what, what your thoughts are on that. Because, um, I mean, that's just a massive contradiction. Yeah. Look, Anna, the Taliban had just won. They'd got the country without wasting too much time and without expending too much blood of their of the blood of their people or them or, the, or their own armies so why on earth should they carry out or be part of a provocation I mean i think the truth will come out and has largely come out of who these guys were who did it they called themselves isis but what else should we be knowing about them? That was the only real act of violence during this whole period. And the United States then went and bombed innocents again. I mean, there yes. you had in that week a provocation by people within Afghanistan, a U.S. drone attack which killed women and children. You know, summing up what had been happening really in many ways for for 20 years. Uh, And the media in Europe especially, but also the liberal press in the United States, couldn't believe that this was happening. My God, are we leaving Afghanistan? In Britain, there's a sort of wretched magazine called The New Statesman, which once upon a time used to be a radical magazine, you know, like The Nation. That's what it was like. This devoted pages of pages and pages by writers who backed the war in Afghanistan uh, saying, why did they withdraw? Of course we could have held on. Well, the, uh, the, the response is, if you could have held on as Britain alone, why didn't you? The fact is, none of these NATO countries could have held on without the support of the United States. And then they attacked the United States for withdrawing. What did they want it to do? Maintain some garrisons, however small, and keep them on. But why? That no one said. So um, it uh, and in order to, you know, justify their attacks on the United States, all the states in the European Union and Britain. I mean, as we know, the news is effectively managed in most of these countries to some degree or the other. In Britain now, it's very strong government management of the news, <clears throat> that they just unleash these big attacks. Oh, what a tragedy. What's going to happen? They had not been covering the war regularly for a long, long time. And some of these newspapers had just changed with the changes in editors and all that. The Guardian in particular in Britain. Its website in the States might have some good stuff and sometimes does, but the actual paper has really degenerated. I mean, when I think that most of my pieces, short pieces in the book, were written initially for The Guardian and published in The Guardian, but that stopped happening since 2016, 2015, the big, big shift rightwards. So... um, and now they've got nothing to say. You know, they mm. try and attack the country instead of waging a campaign, don't have sanctions, send in aid. Uh, the, the, the the balance sheet of sanctioning Iraq is horrible. And there's malnutrition in Afghanistan. They need help. They need aid. And open the doors for the refugees. But why aren't the liberals campaigning for that? You can attack Biden for withdrawing, but then why not campaign for something positive? 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, why don't we uh, ask something positive, uh, something that can actually help the audience uh, stay informed on these types of matters. You know, you mentioned some of the publications that in the past may have done a decent job in, in reporting on these issues, but have unfortunately devolved under new editors. Uh, where do you personally like to go to get uh, news about either foreign policy or international events? Well, I have to admit, well, uh, on two levels, the two newspapers I read regularly Uh, One is the New York Times, since it's the so-called paper of record in the United States. And at least they cover the news from different parts of the world. Whether you agree with them or not is a different thing, but it's quite useful reading them, uh, even to disagree. Uh, The other is the Financial Times, which, you know, as its name suggests, is a paper of capital and then feels obliged to give slightly better reporting. But even the FT has been going down. But leaving those aside, basically, I I go to the web, I go to the internet, I find blogs, people send me stuff they've written, Um, I read Jacobin, I read Counterpunch, I read many, many other things from different parts of the world, Manifesto, in Italy, uh, media part in France, which are independent papers. Media part in France is the best newspaper in Europe, in my opinion. It's not printed. It's simply online, but it's a proper newspaper, which has attacked these wars, exposed their politicians, brought politicians down, uh, etc. So... Um, that's all. That's what you have to do. There's no place where you just, uh, you know, do what you used to in the past and depend on two papers or three at the most. It's impossible to do that because you would learn nothing. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but what you just said is absolutely true. Uh, Tariq Ali, thank you so so much uh, for being generous with your time for for um, writing this incredible book. Everyone, please check it out. It is the Forty Year War in Afghanistan: A Chronicle Foretold. Thank you again for joining us, and I hope you'll join us again soon in the future. I hope so too. Have a good one. All right. Yeah. Tariq is one of the best and very, very, very honored to have him with us today. Uh, and like Anna just said, buy that book. It's a good book. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. And, and easy to read. I, honestly, I read it in two yeah. days. Um, so definitely check it out. I, it's it's a good, I think, comprehensive look at, you know, what what has happened in Afghanistan. And I think a lot of the. A lot of the reporting doesn't even go into what the United States did in Afghanistan, um, you know, during the uh, Soviet era. And I think that context is really important, right? Because we we create the enemies that we're currently, you know, fighting. And it's just a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. If you don't know the history behind what's going on in this case or in most other cases, uh, you really you lose out on kind of the origin of where these things originate from. Like we, as people who think about society and politics, we have to be able to understand like, what is it about this thing that keeps it going? Cause the easy answer is always just, just has its own momentum or something. It's like, uh, why does the thing exist? Well, because it exists, uh, you know, and, and, but when we understand like the structures, the, what is structural, what is not structural, what is like, um, you know, that, 
right person at the right place kind of thing. Like, but you have to be able to account for that and knowing why things change, when they change, how they change is, is so key. And, and that's, you know, I, the, the way that, you know, news is covered, obviously it's not at all attempting to do that uh, for most people. And so you get this kind of like scatterbrain, just like, you know, Jackson Pollock view of the world. It's just like a whole bunch of stuff's going on. It's everywhere. Horrible things. I don't really know. You can't really make sense of it. Uh, but um, no, there's people like like Tariq who have like spent a good deal of their their life uh, documenting um, key aspects uh, in this case of uh, American foreign policy and militarism. And um, and so we have there there is information that we can go back to to actually then try to come up with better solutions for the future. Um, but anyways, I'm yeah. here because we got like 15 minutes, uh, till we have to wrap. Um, yeah. but, uh, if you guys have questions for us, um, please send them in the, the live chat, whether it be, uh, as a super chat, or if you are a YouTube member, you can just ask us a question. Um, but, uh, while we wait for that, um, actually, I wanted to- I wanted yeah. to weigh in briefly um, on uh, mm. Nando's segment. Um, I think that that is such an important, like the, the crime wave that we're experiencing now, I think it's really important. Um, and I know that was like really the point of, of his decode to not minimize it and to address it. Because I think that if, well, first of all, the left loses support if it minimizes a, a clear issue, a clear problem that, that's um, arising right now. But more importantly, in the absence of left solutions, you get more of the failed policies that um, mm-hmm. led to efforts right now to, to, to reform criminal justice, right? Um, the mass incarceration policies, tough on crimes, broken windows, stop and frisk, um, you know, draconian policies in regard to uh, drug possession. Like we don't want to reverse some of the progress that I think has been made. But at the same time, I, I do think it's important to address what we're experiencing and provide better solutions. But I also want to, I, I also want to say that we have to differentiate between what, like, I think what you and Nando are talking about versus what we're seeing in some parts of the country, right? So, you know, just yesterday, someone had sent me a link to a story involving, let me see if I can pull it up, but it was involving someone who had pleaded guilty to four different instances of sexual assault and rape, which is a pretty, pretty serious um, thing to plead guilty to. And this individual uh, received absolutely no jail time. And so there's this like thought process of, oh, progressives or the left, they want to do away with prisons. They want to do away with any harsh punishments. But that is not maybe doing away with harsh punishments. um, In some cases, you can make an argument for. But I don't think the left, at least I'm not under the impression that the left is out there calling for freeing rapists and murderers from prison. But with that said, I think that our um, incarceral state needs to be reformed considerably to something um, similar to what we're seeing in like Nordic countries where um, they actually focus on rehabilitation as opposed to um, a more punitive system like what we have here in the United States. Yeah. I think it's, it's, uh, it's far more humane. It's far more fair, far more just. 
it's just far more real, realistic to both like society uh you know how you know what kinds of things happen in society that like the fact that you know um like what causes crime uh what causes uh these outcomes but also to an extent like human psychology like you know at some level i don't think you know my greatest aspirations for socialism or for whatever kind of better future society i don't think it's going to like radically transform human psychology like and you know you get people who have social pathologies who have um you know bad harmful tendencies to themselves and others and and so as a society you have to have institutions that can deal with that so that you do uphold the actual principles that make up you know our our worldview our our what we think a better society should be which is that you know greater freedom for the individual greater democracy for society and i i think yeah. more often than not honestly freedom should probably trump democracy um and but to have the freedom to do what you want in life you're going to need to have you know a massive re you know restructuring of society so that there's far greater resources in the hands of ordinary people there will have to be democratic institutions that um that hold us together and that hold you know people that end up in places of power accountable but it also means you're going to need institutions that deal with these antisocial behaviors um and again i think the like you're saying exactly like the the best example that we've had so far are the nordic countries deal with rehabilitation that it's not this horrific punitive thing that destroys the person's life in the moment then and then for the rest of their lives onward um like it is the case in the US uh the point is you know both to to deal with the individual to their benefit ultimately but also to the benefit of society that like we right. have to have you know it's because we hold on to these principles and i think that's where you start with the principles of what makes a good society and then you try to build up the institutions that that maximize uh you know our attainment of those yeah i wanted to give of uh, some details uh regarding mm -hmm. the the specific case i mentioned um so this is a new york man he pleaded guilty to rape and sexual abuse for assaulting four teenage girls during parties at his parents home <coughs> excuse me He's not facing any uh, jail time. Uh, the judge has only sentenced him to eight years of probation. Um, and so people, I think, are justified in their rage about this. You know, I there, there was a person who tweeted this story to me because they were furious about it. And they think that I have like a double standard. Um, they brought up the uh, Stanford student. Um, I think his last name was Brock. I can't remember. But anyway, he was... Uh, mm found raping a woman or, you know, right. another student um, behind a dumpster. And uh, he was treated with kid gloves by the judge. And, and so the person sending me this tweet was trying to make an argument that I have a double standard because if the uh, suspect is a white guy, then I'm totally fine. I, I, I want that guy to be like thrown in prison, lock, lock him up. But I don't even know what the race of this New York man is. But my point here is no one is calling for uh confessed rapists to just like walk the streets freely right. with absolutely no consequences. And for anyone who thinks that that is the best way to reform our criminal justice system, I just, I disagree. And I think that yeah. the concerns that people have right now about this crime wave are absolutely legitimate and we need to address them by providing better solutions. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, before we run out of time, I, I wanted to get to a couple questions that people sent. Um, Let's do it. 
there was the first the first question uh, was from LJ, and I believe they're asking, um, did you write a thesis for your master's? Is that? Um... <laughs> <laughs> I did have to write. It's not the same as like a thesis you'd write for a PhD, uh-huh. but there was something similar. And then there were like there was a day long um, exam that I had to do um, where I, I had to choose basically uh, two out of three um, focuses uh, in political science. And Mm -hmm. uh, my focus was American politics and international relations. So, yeah, but I gotta be honest, like I think back at my experience with my master's degree and I I think I was too young Mm -hmm. and inexperienced and I wish I could have waited a little longer. I, I, entered the master's program when I was 20. I was too young mm, and oh honestly didn't know enough. Um, I, I think I would have gotten more out of it had I waited until I was a little older. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, um, well, you know, I, I still seemed like it worked out for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, all right, another question that we got um, from uh, Eliminate Militarism uh, appreciate the screen name, um, asking, do you think Thanksgiving part of our founding mythology, which unlike critical race theory is actually taught to children, to kids, uh, perpetuates the idea that invading other people's land is okay. Or is it mostly coloring sheets, Turkey and football? Well, I mean, I'll be completely transparent in terms of like the education I received. It was mostly coloring sheets and uh, turkey and football and all that. Um, there, there was a little tiny bit of emphasis on um, Native Americans and what the reality of, of you know of the origin of Thanksgiving is. Um, and so, I think it's important for people to know the country's history. There's no question about that. Um, but I also just want to say to some of like the tut tut left. Like, let people enjoy Thanksgiving. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, yeah. and, and if you don't want to call it Thanksgiving, you want to call it, you know, Native People's Day, whatever you want to call it. I'm fine with that. But my point is, I don't I don't think most Americans think about the historical origins of that day. Right. I think mm-hmm. that it's just become a commercialized holiday. And as much as I hate commercialized holidays, Thanksgiving is my personal favorite because of what it leads to. It leads to getting together with your family, sharing a meal together, appreciating one another. Um, It's important to acknowledge our history, uh, but also just let people enjoy the holidays. If if it's like their, you know, escape and their opportunity to spend time with family. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, On the the part of the question saying, does it perpetuate the idea of invading other people's land? I don't think that's, I mean, again, I think insofar as like, this is taught to children, I don't think it's like, you know, uh, some master course on imperialism or something that like, and I, I, my also, my sense is that most people are pretty decent morally and like that it's not that you have to be taught to like oppose oppression um, and domination of other people that for the most part, the challenge is like, acquiring the means to actually oppose it like in terms of power um i think it's you know to your point i mean i think it's totally you know it would be great if more people understood the actual history um and it's like just an unfortunate reality that you know most of our history is taught the way it's taught and um because it's you know uh every you know most things have some kind of like very kind of pleasant mythology to kind of justify their existence that 
Um, and if you want to say America's the greatest country in world history or whatever, then you're going to have to come up with a pretty fluffy beginning. Um, but but I also don't think like everyone learning the correct history is actually going to change things that like yeah. what happened in the past happened and it's horrific. Um, but that doesn't ever change. Whatever our better future is, doesn't depend on like people knowing that the past was bad. It's dependent on us actually being able to mobilize resources and, and people now in order to change it so that we don't have like horrific incidents like uh, the genocide of Native Americans or, um, you know, whether it's colonialism or slavery or whatever it's. Um, but I just think like the consciousness raising aspect is extremely limited. Um, and actually, if I can just say one thing, because I got some shit recently where I did this segment on uh, John Stewart and John Oliver on the Jacobin show a few weeks ago. And people were mad at me because they're like, yeah, but John Stewart, his job isn't, he's not a politician. His, his thing isn't to, sorry, I'm doing a very mean voice for you people, but um, his, their, their argument is that he's not a politician. He's just there to comment, comment on what's going on and, you know, make some jokes. And um, isn't it at least decent that uh, people know a little bit more about X, Y, Z bad thing in the world? Um, and on some level, sure. Yeah, that's fine. But my problem is that I actually think that just, raising awareness about something in that format, how it's been presented for so long, actually demobilizes people in a, in a longer sense that it, it kind of gives us like a pass to say like, oh God, okay, now I know the bad thing. And now I've done my part because like, mm. I've now realized, you know, that the world is bad and, you know, and I should feel bad about it and, and other people should feel bad about it. And I think it's, it. it I think it's more of a missed opportunity than like, you know, some, some massive uh, positive, you know, things that to raise people's consciousness. I, I think it has very limited returns, um, especially when it's presented so disjointed from like politics. Uh, and so to the extent that John wants to say he's not a political actor, I mean, he, that's, that's maybe what he tells himself, but obviously like it, the actual reality of like, what those contributions have been. And it's not, I don't put it all on him. It's like the fact that he does this in a country where there really isn't like a, a strong organized left or labor movement and that we're struggling to do our best to like conjure something up right now. Um, but I do think just raising awareness, it doesn't like, that's not even the, that's not really changing society. That's, you know, because changing society, doing politics is about affecting power and who decides who owns what, what, who has to do what to make a living every single day. And until you're addressing those questions, I, yeah, I, I think as the raising awareness has diminishing returns, but, um, okay. Uh, sorry for a little bit of a, a more <laughs> okay. manageable rant than, on inflation or something. Um, <laughs> um, anyways, I think um, we could probably end it there. I'm not seeing any, there's a bit of conversation going back and forth, uh, but um, I don't see a, a new question. So uh, I okay. guess on that note, um, weekends will be off next week because hopefully you will be uh, enjoying Thanksgiving. Um and also on Friday, the new, uh, I don't know how new it is, but there's the uh, Native American Heritage Day, um, which is colonizing Black Friday, 
which I think we can agree which is I maybe think a is good, great. Yeah. That's a good colonization. We can, yeah. we can all support that colonization. Totally behind that, 100%. <laughs> um, I got to ask you one last question, sure. and, then I, and then we got to go. Um, what is your favorite uh, food item on the Thanksgiving table? It's changed over time. I think, um, I mean, I mashed potatoes and gravy are just always awesome, but... I mean, some years, if it's like, sometimes the stuffing is like the best thing. And sometimes like there's some vegetables that are exceptional. Um, but I, so I don't know. I think that's, it's, I, I'm in that camp. I don't know what that camp is. If someone can define that camp, I'm in, I'm there. You're, but what you're about you? Fair weather, fair weather fan of items on mm. the, on the Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> table. <laughs> For me, it's, it's, it sounds funny, but like I've got to have the cranberry sauce and I put mm. it on everything. I, I know it's only supposed to go on a few things, but I put it on everything. I just love it. I love cranberry yeah. sauce. So with the exception of mac and cheese, if there's mac and cheese on the table, I will not put cranberry sauce on that. But yeah, I'm I'm so excited. I'm looking forward to like just sharing a meal with my family yeah. and like not having to worry about work and just enjoying myself. And hopefully you guys are all all doing the same. And um, yeah, so uh, that's it, guys. That's our show for today. And as always, please uh, like and share this stream, subscribe to Jacobin Magazine, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already. And the only thing left to do is have a great weekend. And we'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye-bye.